Thank you, Ben. Uh, ben said update because um, he knows that my wife was dangerously ill at uh, the beginning of the year, uh, almost died, uh, had a very serious sepsis followed by pneumonia. And uh, yet again, it's just lovely to hear that testimony again this morning. At the same time, uh, I have uh, two uh, twins, uh, granddaughters, and uh, at the same time as my wife was ill, uh, the little one pulled hot water all over her, uh, down her face and over her arm and, and stuff, and uh, it was emergency in Bristol Hospital. Um, but pleased to say, again, God's really healed her. It's not even a scar. It's just quite amazing. So God's a God who's alive and active, and we can call upon him. And it's great that whether it's calm or storm, uh, he's with us through it all, isn't it? Well, I've entitled this uh, uh, talk from Hebrews this morning, Against the Tide. And uh, if we've got the first slide up, can we do that? Good. And the next one. <laughs> there we go. I wonder how many of you recognize uh, this, uh, I was going to say young man. Uh, it's actually Bill Gates of uh, Microsoft uh, fame. Uh, I looked up this year, um, in March anyway this year, uh, his personal worth uh, was counted to be $100 billion. That's his own personal worth. And uh, I don't know if you know, but uh, Bill Gates has said he wants to give away 90% of his wealth by the time of his death. Isn't that amazing? And uh, when he was uh, uh, 63 years old, oh, sorry, not when he was 63, he's 63 now. When he was 40, uh, he took the decision that Microsoft would no longer be his primary activity. And he really did begin to swim against the tide of the prevailing culture in America, uh, which in those days was uh, called rampant greed. And he set up his own charitable foundation, particularly to focus on the poorest in the world. And together with his wife, he made his primary activity the pursuit of human dignity and equality. Many commentators on Bill Gates' life have said that he has shown generosity at such a staggering scale that they call it mega philanthropy. And one of the things he's also tried to do in recent years is to persuade others with wealth to follow his example. And if you know anything about his foundation, you might want to go on the website and have a look at it. Uh, you'll know that uh, he specializes in agriculture, uh, food production in poor countries, uh, the production uh, particularly of education, uh, working in global health with AIDS and HIV, family planning, production of vaccines, all that kind of thing. So you say, well, Mike, why are you telling us all this about Bill Gates? That doesn't seem to come from the book of Hebrews. Well, the answer very simply is this, that as followers of Jesus, uh, we also are called to swim against the tide. Not necessarily in the same way or manner as Bill Gates, but I do believe that uh, we are called, each one of us as Christians, to swim against the tide of the prevailing culture in which we live. Os uh, Guinness, uh, a really lovely um, Christian writer and preacher and teacher, says of Hebrews chapter 11, that it is the great honors list of the Bible, people of visionary faith, men and women whose vision of God called them to live and work against the customs, values, and priorities of their generation. He speaks about them being people who march to a different tune, who set their sights on a different goal, whose home was in a different country, and who look for a different city 
to dwell. Now, the book of Hebrews, as you might remember, was written to Jewish followers of Jesus who were facing suffering because of their trust in Jesus. Many had already experienced public insult and persecution. Some have been in prison for their faith. Some even have had their property confiscated. But at the time that the writer to the Hebrews was writing, uh, the church, the Jewish uh, believers here, were facing a period of increased persecution. And many of them were being tempted to revert back to Judaism, to their old Jewish faith, in order to avoid further persecution. And so when the writer to the uh, Hebrews writes, he's reminding them that in Jesus, they have been given greater and better promises than they have received in the past. And the fact that Jesus actually brings the reality of the things that were just mere shadows in past Jewish history. But the writer also warns of the grave dangers of giving up on Jesus and turning their back and, going, and giving up the fight. And he says to them that to do so would insult the Holy Spirit of grace through whom they were born again. And it would only lead to a fearful expectation of God's judgment. And so when he gets to chapter 11, he's seeking to encourage them to persevere in their faith to keep following Jesus. And he reminds God's people that in the past, there were these great figures, a kind of hall of fame, who trusted God through the most difficult times, who faced similar difficulty and hardship and suffering. And uh, I'd love to go right through the whole chapter 11, but I can't do that. So I just got to focus this morning on one man from this hall of fame, and that's Moses. And uh, Moses, I'm sure, would be very familiar to most of you. And he certainly was a man who uh, swam against the tide. But if you have a Bible, you might just like to turn to uh, Hebrews 11. And I'm just going to read you uh, a couple of verses uh, which speaks about Moses here in this Hall of Fame. And that's uh, chapter 11 and verse 24. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger, and he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. Now just to remind you of the background of Moses, the first thing we read about Moses actually is in the verse before I read, verse 23, that Moses actually had God-fearing and faith-filled parents. And when Pharaoh made a decree that every Hebrew baby boy that was born was to be thrown into the river Nile and left to die, his parents disobeyed that decree. And they hid him for three months. And when they couldn't hide him any longer, they put him in a papyrus basket and they put him in the reeds along the bank of the Nile. And to cut the story short, you know that Pharaoh's daughter came down to bathe with her entourage and found him in the reeds and took pity on him. And in the wonderful providence of God, 
Moses' actual birth mother was engaged to nurse Moses during those first stages of his life. But when he grew older, he was taken to the palace and he became Pharaoh's daughter's son and was brought up as part of the royal household. And it's against that background that we then read these words from Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Instead, he chose to be identified with God's people. In fact, it actually says he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. So let's think about that for a moment. In refuting his royal title, what was Moses giving up? What was he turning his back on? And what was his motivation for embracing mistreatment and disgrace with the people of God? Well, let me share just one or two obvious things. Firstly, he was giving up his position. He was born into a slave family, but now he was a royal prince. And because he was a prince in Egypt, he had status, he had recognition, he had honor, and he had reputation. All those things that actually in today's world, people prize very highly. Mankind hasn't changed very much. All the things that people even today prize were Moses as a prince of Egypt. From the dawn of time, man has always wanted or had an appetite or desire for recognition and position. Remember it says of Satan himself that he sought to usurp God's position. The Pharisees in uh, Jesus' day, if you look in Mark chapter 12, you remember Jesus says of them that the Pharisees wanted the best seats in the synagogues the place of honor at the feast, and to have such titles as teacher. They too wanted position and recognition. And can I say that in, even in today's church, we're not immune from that rampant desire for recognition and status and position. And I think we would all do well actually to search our hearts and ask ourselves, is this what I'm really after? Not just in the world, but if I can't get it in the world, maybe I can get it in church. Are we really out for position and recognition? Well, Moses wanted to turn his back on that. Now, we're not told in the text, but I think it is helpful to ask the question, did Moses reject his royal status because he had become more concerned about his position before God than before men? Had he come to understand God's ways of greatness for a man is the way of service rather than being served? Had he determined in his heart to live for an audience of one? Os Guinness says, most of us, whether we are aware of it or not, do things with an eye to the approval of some audience or other. The question is not whether we have an audience but which audience we have. Remember it says of Jesus in Philippians 2.7 that he made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant. Or as the NIV has it, he made himself nothing, 
taking the very nature of a servant. You see, men and women of visionary faith who are prepared to swim against the tide of our culture are men and women that are not obsessed by their own status or position in society or indeed in the church, but they readily give themselves in the service of others because they are aware that they are living their lives for an audience of one. Second thing Moses gave up was power. Now position and power frequently go together. And as a royal prince, Moses had the power. He could order his own affairs, he could control his own destiny, he could direct the affairs of others, and he could command instant obedience. Many of the decisions that Moses was able to take could affect the whole nation, as well as many people groups. I guess we could use two words to describe Moses' life. They would be independence and influence. And how many people today aspire to be in such a position of power? History is littered with accounts of people who at any cost tried to grasp and exercise religious, political, or social power. I'm not just talking about those that looked uh, for national or world domination, such as in the last century with Hitler or Mao Zedong or Pol Pot or Idi Amin or many others that you could mention. I think if we're honest at a personal level, some of us love the feeling of being in a position of control not only of our own lives, but of the lives of others. We value that ability to be able to direct, dare I say, manipulate others to our own ends. We like to exercise authority over others, or to use a biblical phrase, to lord it over others. And Jesus said, do you remember, that though it may be true of the world, that the world loves to lord it over other people, it is not to be so, amongst Jesus' followers. But Moses took the decision to bring an end to independent living. For Moses, influence with God was more important than influence over men. Submission to the will of God was more important than personal preference. He was no longer prepared to worship at the altar of personal choice. Now this is important for our own generation because independence is often expressed through the power of personal choice in society and even in the church. Choice is no longer for us just a state of mind. Choice has become a value, a priority, a right. Choice for modern man is a right that overwhelms both responsibility and rationality. Do you remember when Jesus had an encounter with a centurion? In fact, in Luke 7, it tells us a centurion sent to him because his servant was sick and he wanted Jesus to heal. And one of the things the centurion recognized, if you read that scripture, was that he recognized that Jesus had power and authority that came from the fact that Jesus lived his life in submission to the authority and will of his Father. Do you remember there are many times in Scripture, particularly in John's Gospel, where Jesus asserted 
that dependency on his Father. John 5.19 The Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. John 8.28 I do nothing on my own, but speak just what the Father has taught me. John 6.38 For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Men and women of visionary faith who are prepared to swim against the tide of our culture know that true power and influence comes from living in total dependency upon God. That decisions and choices that we make in life are governed by our submission to the revealed will of God. That what power and influence we may have should be used for the good of others and the extension of God's kingdom. The third thing that Moses turned his back on was his possessions. If you notice in verse 26 that we read together, it speaks of him giving up the treasures of Egypt. Now Egypt was an enormously rich place, not only in terms of gold and silver and fine clothes and jewellery, but also in fine architecture and buildings, Egypt was the center of the world at that time in terms of art, of learning, of music, and of culture. In fact, if you turn to the New Testament in the book of Acts, chapter 7, verse 22, it tells us there, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. He was a pretty gendered up guy. He'd received all that kind of knowledge and all the wealth and everything else there. In every sphere of life, physical, material, intellectual, social, Moses had been endowed with a superabundance. And yet he was prepared to throw it all over. Why? Why was he prepared to throw over what everybody in our own world today is so looking for. What do we want to get? We want to get just that little bit more wealthy, just that little bit more money and it would help us to be happy. Just a few more possessions, a new car or something else and everything will be fine in my life. But Moses was willing to throw over all his possessions. Had Moses discovered what Jesus taught many years later in Luke 12, 15, but a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Had he answered the question that was posed by Jesus in Mark 8.36, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Had he learned what Paul taught later in 1 Corinthians 1.21, since the world in all its fancy wisdom never had a clue when it came to knowing God, God in his wisdom took delight in using what the world considered dumb, preaching of all things, to bring those who trust in him to the way of salvation. Human wisdom and human intellect, however great, can never lead us to a knowledge of God. God has to supernaturally open our eyes to the truth. Had Moses come to realize that God himself was the greatest treasure that you could have in life. 
Was he prepared to give up everything in order to have God? The Apostle Paul said something about this in Philippians 3, 7-9 when he says, But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Just quickly looking around the room to just see how many are as old as me. When I was growing up in the 60s, uh, there was a gang of five young American missionaries and uh, they decided together that they felt that God wanted them to reach an unreached people group. Actually, a, a group in Ecuador that had never had any contact whatsoever with the outside world. And so the five of them, young as they were, decided that they would go and see if they could make contact and could send, you know, bring with them the gospel to these people. So they had a little plane and they flew over the area uh, where these people lived. And as you can imagine, they were you know, just as naked as the day they were born and so forth. And uh, they started to drop presents down from the plane. And uh, the Indians would come out of the jungle and they would take hold of these things and they would run back in again. And they got to the point where they thought, we've done this enough now. Let's see if we can actually you know, get to talk to them. So they flew around the jungle and they found a strip of sand on which they thought they could land the plane. And so the five of them came down in this plane onto the sand and they got out and they waited and they waited and eventually the Indians came out. First meeting was quite good. But it wasn't long before all five were killed. And one of them, Jim Elliot, wrote this in his diary. They found this afterwards, after his death. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Isn't that amazing? He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliot, as young as he was, and they have family and so forth, he was prepared to go and reach them with the good news of Christ. And if he died in the process, that was okay. Because he knew that he was secure in God's love and with God for eternity. We have a couple in our own church who work in the Middle East. And uh, I won't tell you where they are. Um, but, uh, you know, people sometimes when they're home, people often say to them, how come you're, you're living out there? And how come, isn't it dangerous out there? And, and what should happen? if you and the family get killed? I'll tell you what their answer is, because it's always the same. They said, we died years ago. What do you mean by that? I mean by that, that years ago, they decided that they were going to give their lives to Christ and to serve his purposes. And if that meant that one day their life would be taken in the process, they were up for that. Amazing testimony. Okay, the last thing. Pleasures of sin is the last thing that Moses gave up. In the Egyptian culture, it provided Moses with plenty of opportunity to indulge and gratify his appetites 
Some were legitimate, designed by God for man's good and enjoyment, but others were definitely sinful pursuits. And Moses, as a prince of Egypt, had more opportunity than most to indulge his passions. In fact, the original word in here gives the sense that Moses had been engaged in a sustained rebellion of sinful actions. In other words, he kept committing the same sins over and over again because of the pleasure that he received from doing them. But Moses made a deliberate choice to end this way of life. No longer would he be governed or dominated by the immediate. No longer would he indulge himself in sinful behavior, even though it was pleasurable. You see, for Moses, there came a point when his whole value system began to change. The long term and the eternal consequences of his actions had become plain to him. And no doubt there were those around Moses who were perplexed by his change of behavior. Maybe they even ridiculed him for no longer indulging his passions as he had done in the past. Maybe they even abused him from being out of step with their world. But as C.S. Lewis said, to be a follower of Jesus is both world-affirming and world-denying at the same time. Isn't that right? As Christians, we're not meant to exit the world. We're meant to be in the world, but not of it. And there's plenty in the world that still speaks of our God who created everything. As we said today, he's an awesome God, isn't he? When we look around at creation, look at the sunset, whatever it might be, we see we're world-affirming. These are good things that God has made, but we're also world-denying. We know there are things that are harmful, harmful to individuals, harmful to society, and those things we can't go along with. Ways of living that do not please and honor God. To be a follower of Jesus means that we are to leave all other allegiances to do what he says, to live as he requires, which involves walking as he walked. And brothers and sisters, that costs. In the gospel, there is an antithesis to the world that we dare not relax, a cost to discipleship that we cannot waive, a challenge to obedience that we must not conceal, and a scandal to faith that we should never airbrush away. Men and women of visionary faith live with their eye on eternity. They strive to live a holy life worthy of their calling because they know that it matters. They're prepared to die to self and all sinful pleasures because they know ultimately, as C.S. Lewis put it in his book, The Great Divorce, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done, and those to whom God says, Thy will be done. And that is the difference between heaven and hell. So to summarize that, by faith Moses refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He turned his back on his position, status, recognition and honor. He turned his back on his power, personal independence and self-centered influence. He turned his back on his possessions as a source of lasting satisfaction and he turned his back on his sinful pleasures and the value system and the way he had been living. But that's not the end of the story. Because if you remember the verses that we read together, it's important to recognize that although he turned away from those things, 
He turned towards something. So that's what repentance is about, isn't it? We often say of repentance, that repentance is turning 180 degrees. You actually turn away from something in order to turn towards something. And so when we become followers of Jesus, we turn away from our sin and our rebellion and live in life in our own way, and we turn to put our trust in Jesus Christ and our allegiance given to him to live in his kingdom under his kingship for the rest of our, our lives. And so it's important that we note here that Moses turned away from those things so that he could identify himself with the people of God. It's true the people of God were a despised people, but they were a people of a divinely ordained destiny. We're not simply called to be men and women of faith, but also to be men and women of a faith community. Although each of us is summoned individually, and therefore uniquely, and therefore personally to follow Christ, we are never summoned to be a bunch of individual believers rather than to be a community of faith. We are bound together by a covenant and are meant to live out a corporate calling that both complements and yet also transcends our calling as individuals. Now, I believe that's vital today in the climate that we have today of individualism that stresses personal rights and personal fulfillment. The importance, as we said already, of individual choice. And many churches today put an overemphasis even on discovering your own personal gift and ministry. There are some churches that I go to where I feel that they've just gone overboard. Where everybody is seeking to find, what's my ministry? What's God given me? What's the gifts I've got? To the detriment of the goodness for the whole body of Christ and for other brothers and sisters to help them into their gifting. Watch that danger that you don't get so caught up with your own personal ministry and gifting that you forget that you're part of a body. And how important this is in a church climate today where so many churches split, where there are divisions in churches, where people church hop from one church to another. Lack of commitment to the corporate body of the church is not new. At the start of the early church in Acts chapter 4, it says all the believers were one in heart and mind. But by the time you get to the book of Hebrews and Hebrews chapter 10, you find that there are warnings that the writer gives there about people who were neglecting to meet together. And the writer has to encourage them. Now come on, don't neglect meeting together. Because you're meant to come together to spur one another on to love and good works. And you remember in John's first epistle, he emphasizes the fact that love of the brethren is the authenticating mark of a true follower of Jesus. Can I say this to you very sincerely? If you do not love your brothers and sisters in Christ, I wonder whether you're born again. That's what John's saying. If you don't love your brother and sister in Christ, are you really born again? Has your heart really been changed? Have you really come to know Christ? Are you really a follower of him? Then if you are, then you will love your brethren. From your heart. And you'll do all that you can to see that your brother or sister is blessed and provided with all that they need. 
So that's a bit radical. Yeah, well, Jesus was radical. That's what he calls his followers to. That kind of radical. And what is the world waiting to see? They're not just waiting to see individual believers who follow Jesus. They're looking to see a community where love is expressed, where everyone is welcome, old or young, whatever your social background, whatever your ethnic background, we can be one in Jesus Christ. And the world is waiting to see a revelation of that. Isn't it? Because Jesus on the cross broke down the dividing walls of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. We come together in Christ. And the world is looking for that. The world doesn't know what to do with all its troubles. You've got Mr. Trump again now, you arguing with Iran. Are they ever going to get together? You get all that's happening in Yemen. There's all sorts of things happening around the world where people are at odds with each other. Nobody in unity. Nobody loving each other. And God wants to see his church. Demonstrating that, reflecting his heart to the world. We're not just called to be individual, isolated Christians. We come into a family of faith. And that's the great thing here about Moses. That he was prepared to identify with the suffering of God's people. It says he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God. He was prepared to be despised, written off, looked down on, oppressed. He was ready to suffer disgrace for the sake of Christ. Are you? Are you? Most of us want a good reputation, don't we? We want people to think nice thoughts of us. Are you ready? I've been doing a lot of teaching recently on the whole question of transgender and so forth. Boy, you do you get some brickbats when you start to talk about these issues and what the Bible says and so forth. Why? Because society has totally accepted what's going on out there. And what's happening with the, the, the trying to do away with any kind of binary gender. And we've got to help our, our young children now, even whether they're maybe six or seven, to change gender. So if I'm going to stand up as a believer, I'm going to find myself going against the tide. Am I prepared to be called a bigot? Am I prepared to be called phobic? Are you ready to suffer disgrace? Moses was. He said, I'd, I'd rather turn my back on all these things. The pleasures of Egypt, the power, the possessions. Turn my back on those and I want to be identified with the people of God. Is that what's in your spirit? He valued this abuse and suffering and disgrace and mistreatment more highly than the treasures of Egypt and the short-lived, listen, the short-lived pleasures of his sinful behavior. Don't be fooled. There is pleasure in sin, but only for a season. There are consequences that follow. Moses, I think, would have agreed with Paul. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. The reason that Paul endured suffering and hardship for the sake of the gospel, the reason he persevered and allowed himself to be treated 
as he says in his epistles, to the scum of the earth and the refuge of the world was that he fixed his eyes on the eternal. And it was the same with Moses. It says he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Men and women of visionary faith who swim against the tide identify fully with the people of God, the church in every place where she manifests her life. The great love of their life is the church. The most important thing on their agenda is the church. The thing they would die for is the church. They are prepared to suffer any kind of personal hardship, discomfort or disgrace for the desire of making Christ known. They keep their eyes on the eternal. Or we would be better to say, they keep their eyes on the eternal one. He saw him who was invisible. So as we close, can I ask you this morning, what is the most important thing or the most important person in your life? What are you living for? What consumes your thinking? What value do you attach to position and power and possessions? Can I ask you, are you still indulging in the fleeting pleasures of sinful behavior? Or are you ready to enlist in the battle to win the world for Jesus? Are you prepared to suffer any discomfort, hardship and disgrace to make him known? Will you fix your eyes on Jesus, our exceedingly great reward? You may not be able to affect world poverty like Bill Gates. You may never lead a people out of slavery to form a new nation under God like Moses. But as the hymn that I used to sing as a tiny tot, there is a work for Jesus none but you can do. Are you prepared? to do that work for Jesus that only you can do. I do believe it's time to swim against the tide so that we see our nation and the nations brought back to God. It's time to swim against the tide. Let's pray together. Father, we do want to thank you so much uh, for your body not just here this morning in Harlow, Lord, but right across the world. Lord, we say to you, Lord, we love your church, the church for whom your dear son died. Lord, we will one day be the bride of Christ. We will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will be with you for eternity. But Lord, we know that's far off for us at the moment. And Lord, you've caused us to live in this time in this day and in this generation. And Lord, you've called us to make you known, to go into all the world and proclaim the good news, Lord Jesus, of who you are and what you've done. So Lord, we ask that you'll just search our hearts again this morning. You'd help us to be encouraged and inspired by Moses, Lord, the way that he turned his back on everything, to fully embrace, Lord, what you had for him. We thank you for him, Father. We thank you that you took hold of his life and you transformed him. And Lord, we ask that you do the same for us, that you transform us. Lord, I just pray for the church here at Harlow, that you'll bless them as they seek to make you known. Lord, I do pray that you'll give them courage. I do pray that you'll give them boldness. 
I do pray that you'll give them a spirit of perseverance and Lord that they may be willing to take the flack as it were even as they seek to make you known in this area in this town where you've put them to live Lord we need you we need your grace we need your mercy but we want you to be glorified Lord would you hear our cry and answer our prayer for Father we pray in Jesus name Amen Amen Thank you.